Good morning, everybody. Uh, we're four weeks into a series that we've titled The Loneliness Epidemic, where we are addressing the reality that more people today are suffering from loneliness and isolation than ever before. Numerous scientific studies have demonstrated this, including a recent study published by the U.S. Surgeon General. Uh, they show an alarming uptick in physical, emotional, and sociological disorders and diseases brought on by loneliness and isolation. This despite the fact that we have more ways than ever before to connect with one another, and we have more people to connect with than ever before. So we've been looking at some possible reasons why that is, and some possible solutions, answers, uh, ante antidotes perhaps, uh, to this epidemic. And one of the possible reasons for our loneliness and isolation that I pointed out last week is that we, we, we stink. Uh, people stink. <laughs> and, and maybe we are distancing ourselves from one another because we stink. Now, I know you're thinking, dang, Jim, I, I was really hoping we were done with the whole stink thing last week, you know? Do we really have to bring that back this week? I promise I, I won't camp out here today, but, but it really is true. I stink. You stink. We all stink. And I don't mean so much in the olfactory sense, uh, although being, you know, physically part of the animal kingdom, we do tend to exude odors, uh, particularly if we fail to practice uh, good hygiene. Uh, just keeping it real here. Uh, but we human beings are not mere animals. We are far more than mere animals. We have a spiritual nature as well as a physical nature. We have dual natures. And when it comes to our spiritual nature, well, we stink there as well. Uh, because we are all fallen sinful human beings and as such we tend to be we tend to be offensive to one another um, the prophet isaiah said this he, he said we are all infected and impure with sin and when we display our righteous deeds not our evil deeds but when we display our righteous deeds they are nothing but filthy rags. Even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags when compared to God's righteous standard. Our own righteousness is as filthy, smelly rags. The Apostle Paul goes so far as to say that he counts his own righteousness, his righteousness as, not his shortcomings, but his righteousness. The Apostle Paul, he counts it as dung. <laughs> I would not have used that word, especially in church, but he did. And, uh, and he said he, has, he counts of a dung and has discarded it so that he could possess a righteousness not of his own, but a righteousness that comes simply by faith in Jesus. We'll look at that verse in, uh, we'll, we'll read that verse uh, later on in the series. Now, I want you just to kind of hang on with me uh, this morning. I know it sounds like I'm getting all down, you know, on how bad and dirty and sinful we all are. But, but this is actually going somewhere I think you're going to like. So, so hang in there with it. It's, it's going to go somewhere eventually. It will go there. Uh, so, uh, and besides, the truth, the truth sets us free, right? And, and this is the truth. It, it may not always be pleasant to hear, but the truth redeems, the truth restores, and, and it heals the, wor the world. C.S. Lewis, one of my heroes, I quote from him all the time, uh, he once wrote that uh, 
the real job of every moral teacher, and I think he would probably lump guys like me, you know, pastors, in, into the group of moral teachers. He says, the real job of every moral teacher is to keep on bringing us back time after time to the old simple principles which we are all so anxious not to hear. And I think that's true. So, so one of the possible reasons for the epidemic of loneliness in our day is that we are fallen, sinful human beings. We stink. And, and, and so consequently, we distance ourselves from one another. You have to admit that that's a very real possibility. One of the objectives, uh, one of the objections uh, you might be entertaining about that idea is that if this is true of human beings, why is it only creating loneliness and isolation now? Uh, haven't we always been this way? So why is it only now that is contributing to loneliness and isolation? Well, it's true. We've, been, we've, we've always been stinky. And in fact, last week I, I started off the message by describing my sweet, beautiful, smart, funny, kind, cute grandson sitting right out there. Hi, buddy. Hi, pumpkin. <laughs> you sit right out there. It started off by talking about uh, how he is frequently quite pungent, uh, as most two-year-olds are, and yet he is very, very much loved, treasured, and delighted in. Now, as adults, we may not need to be changed in the same way as a two-year-old needs to be changed, but the argument could be made that you and I need to be changed in perhaps a far more substantive way. But you are right. This has always been true, but I would contend that this reality has always had the effect of creating isolation and disconnection between people. In our day, though, it seems to have reached epidemic proportions. And I'm going to suggest that one of the reasons that maybe has reached epidemic proportions is because in our day, we've become more convinced than ever that we have no such issues and flaws. In fact, we are, so we think, we are more enlightened, more virtuous, more intellectually and morally advanced than ever before. That's what this generation thinks. We have more knowledge, we have more wisdom and insight than ever before in human history that is leading us to deconstruct and disassemble the misguided and corrosive morals and value systems that we have so ignorantly relied on for so long. That's, that's what we're being told, and that's what we're seeing the evidence of. We truly believe we have reached a point where we really don't need God anymore because we are so intelligent and so enlightened. And yet, <laughs> and yet, there is this undeniable foul aroma that persists and even seems to be growing stronger. Of course, it's not coming from us. <laughs> no, of course not. Maybe it's coming from those people over there. And of course, the people over there are saying, no, 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 it's definitely not coming from us. It's coming from you over there. See, our sinfulness and fallenness is, not, is nothing new. What's perhaps new is the degree to which we are convinced that we are not actually sinful and fallen. It has become far more easy and far more common today to create, a dis create distorted images of ourselves. We live in the age of the photoshopped selfie. 
We, we have more tools at our disposal to enhance and alter our real self into an ideal self than ever before. And this is encouraged. It's even celebrated. We're being told that we can be whoever we imagine ourselves to be. We can create our own identity, whether it's rooted in reality or not. And so we do. Some of us in, in very extreme ways, but most of us in far more subtle ways, you know, by, exager by exaggeration, by exaggerating, first in our own mind and then on, through our words and behavior, exaggerating our achievements, our qualifications, our talents, our abilities, our knowledge, our education, our goodness and virtue, and even things like our humility. <laughs> yeah, we exaggerate our humility so that we wind up with an idea of ourselves, an imaginary identity that is, at least to some degree, distorted from reality. And everything about the culture we live in feeds this and encourages it, creating a photoshopped, airbrushed, enhanced and embellished image of ourselves for ourselves in our own mind. A recent article in Psychology Today states, and I quote, Narcissism, while often described as a disorder, also may describe an orderly process for effective marketing. In other words, turns out, appealing to people's narcissism is good for business. The article then goes on to describe a list of narcissistic behaviors as seen through the lens of some branding best practices. Marketing and advertising departments spend upwards of a trillion dollars a year appealing to your narcissism and my narcissism. And while narcissism is nothing new and has been part of human nature, uh, part of human nature since the beginning of human history, I think the argument could be made that never before have we had such advanced tools to exploit this part of human nature. So the end result is we all tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. As the famous theologian Ron Burgundy once said, I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Remember that from that movie, yeah. See, we all have this tendency to some degree. And when you're living in a social media face-tuned, photoshopped selfie culture, we all wind up somewhat deceived. Deceived about how, who other people really are, and worse, deceived about who we ourselves really are. Our identity winds up not being rooted in reality, but rooted in our own imagination. When the prophet Jeremiah said, uh, when he said, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked, who really knows how bad it is? He wasn't saying that my heart is deceptive because it fools other people. He's saying my heart is deceptive because it fools me. We deceive ourselves by harboring an image of ourselves that is, that is distorted. It's distorted, but it's also very fragile because it's only a veneer. It's, it's really only in our imagination. And when it's exposed to, uh, to reality, which it invariably is, well, well, what happens when somebody doesn't give you the respect you feel you deserve? Or when somebody doesn't place the same value on your opinions that you place on them. 
or, or when they treat you, they, or when they don't treat you with the deference and honor that you're convinced in your imagination that you've earned, but maybe haven't actually earned? What happens when somebody doesn't affirm your identity as you've defined it in your own mind? I don't know what for sure happens with you, but let me tell you what happens with me. Because it turns out I, I actually have a lot of experience. I, I'm very, very guilty of this myself. And so let me tell you what happens to me when somebody doesn't affirm the identity I've created of myself in my own mind. What happens is I get offended. Uh, I, and, and once I've been offended, I get angry. And after I get offended and angry, I find myself wanting to distance myself from the person who offended me because they don't validate my perception of myself. And if I'm not careful, I wind up losing a friend or I wind up losing, losing a connection with a family member or, or, or I lose a, a relationship that I treasure very highly all because I got offended because they didn't affirm my perception of myself. And I truly believe that this is what is playing out on a very large scale in our culture today. We've all become experts. We all see ourselves as experts. And those people over there, well, they're completely ignorant. But are we actually experts? No, not by a long shot, about pretty much anything. And are they actually completely ignorant? No. Well, at least not completely. Yet we seem to have made a national sport out of being offended and, and, and finding more and more justification to be offended with each other. So we write each other off and we distance ourselves from one another and sever relationships, sometimes even family ties, marital ties. And not surprisingly, the result is loneliness and isolation as we find it uh, as we find ourselves having more and more difficulty finding someone, anyone, who is willing to affirm the identity we have created for ourselves and our own imagination. See, we're all offensive. We always have been. Christian author Frank Viola, he asserts this in his book, Living Without a, uh, Offense. He, he asserts that Christians are more easily offended than anybody else. Christian author and radio host Brant Hansen disagrees. In his book, Unoffendable, he says in his experience, people, all people, thrive on being offended. It makes us feel more righteous to get aggravated at the behavior of other people. It makes us feel superior. It makes us feel as though we are justified in our offense. And in fact, the prevailing belief today is that if you're not offended by certain things, well, then you just aren't a very good person. You, you just aren't very socially conscious or sensitive to, you know, injustice or whatever you happen to believe that you excel at. It's kind of a vicious cycle, actually. The more offended you become, the more righteous you are in your own mind, which makes you even more easily offended. And Hansen says that's true of all of us, not just religious people. He lives near San Francisco, which is largely a post-Christian culture, and he has found that there are a whole bunch of things that one can do or even think that that culture there would find terribly offensive. It's actually a very long list of things that you can offend people with. It's just a different list. 
everybody's got their own list. But what if being offended isn't all it's cracked up to be? You're going, Jim, I find that offensive. <laughs> what if instead of being offended, we just, we just chose not to be offended? Could it be that easy? In fact, what if it's not only that easy, but it's also what we're supposed to do as Jesus followers, not be offended? Maybe that's the best choice we can make, is simply just don't be offended. What if instead of being appalled and outraged at each other's words, at other people's words uh, and opinions and choices and behaviors, we just kind of acknowledge that, that people are fallen and sinful, lost and broken, and they need a savior, need, need to be rescued, including ourselves. So that instead of, you know, us, us going, I can't believe someone would do that. I can't believe someone would say that. I can't believe someone would think that. Instead, we just kind of go, well, they're fallen, sinful human beings. And that's kind of par for the course. Listen, Jesus was never shocked by people's sinfulness and fallenness. Never. It didn't surprise him one bit. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us uh, Jesus' expectation of people. He says, Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature. Brant, Brant Hansen, in his book, Unoffendable, he suggests that maybe those who seek to follow Jesus should, should take the same approach. Jesus encountered one moral mess after another, and yet he was never taken aback by, by anyone's morality, ever. You, you just don't see it. He, he writes this. He says, Perhaps a big part of being less offend offendable is seeing the human heart for what it is, untrustworthy, unfaithful, prone to selfishness. So now we don't have to be so shocked. See, you can choose not to be offended when you come to terms with the fact that people are fallen and sinful, all of them, including you. Perhaps in different ways, but without exception, the whole lot of us, you and me, we have a terminal disease called sin. In fact, maybe, if anything, we should be shocked that our world is not more immoral, corrupt, evil, selfish, stinky, especially given the rate at which people are distancing themselves from God these days, the one and only true source of goodness and truth. And yet, because we remain convinced that we are more spiritually and morally and intellectually advanced and enlightened than ever before, we are easily offended when reality, when the truth catches up to us. What's the word? What's the word that we've been kind of dancing around here? What, what, what's the word we're looking for? That thing that invariably leads to our being offended. The thing that fuels our offense. There's a word for it. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. I'm going to read a whole paragraph from his book, Mere Christianity. Listen carefully. He says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their head about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. 
I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking about is pride. Pride. We plainly see it and despise it in others and having little, little mercy of it in others, but we are completely unconscious of it in ourselves. Except it's interesting that C.S. Lewis kept singling out Christians as the one possible exception in this passage. Why is that? Why might it be true that Christians are more apt to acknowledge they are guilty of pride than the average person? Lewis says he's never heard anyone who is not a Christian admit that they wrestled with pride. He says, in general, there is no fault we are more conscious of in others and yet more unconscious of in ourselves. Why might it be true that Christians are perhaps the exception and maybe are more likely to acknowledge pride in themselves? Why might that be true? It's kind of the ticket in, isn't it? it it's, it's the prerequisite. It's the gate you must pass through if you want to get on the road to life. It's the small gate, the narrow gate, as Jesus described it. We might say it's the humble gate. We have to acknowledge and come to terms with our pride. Because until we acknowledge we're proud, until we acknowledge that, we cannot acknowledge our sinfulness and fallenness. Which means we've got to let go of who we think we are the identity that we've created for ourselves in our own imagination. We all do this. We daydream about who we want to be. And in time, we actually convince ourselves we are that person. It's usually not a complete fabrication, although sometimes it is. Usually it's just an exaggeration of our experience, our education, our talent, our success, or some other personal trait or virtue. We, we become convinced that, for example, we've demonstrated above average knowledge in a particular area, but then we subconsciously extrapolate, extrapolate that to believing we're just generally more knowledgeable than most people, despite the fact we're really pretty ignorant about most things. And that's true of all of us. You get that, right? We're all, all of us, are ignorant about most things. Of all the collective knowledge of everyone in the world, 8 billion people, all their knowledge pooled together, I mean, come on, the percentage of knowledge that any one of us possess, the percentage of that, that collective knowledge that any one of us possess, it wouldn't even register on the scale. It wouldn't even show up on the chart. We are, every one of us, mostly ignorant about most things. And yet we pretend we aren't. We like to think that we're very knowledgeable. And we're very easily offended when somebody challenges our knowledge, aren't we? It's because we have a distorted perception of ourselves, of our skills, our experience, our qualifications, our intelligence, and yes, even, even our goodness and virtue. And when we have a distorted image of who we are, or when we have a distorted identity, perhaps one not rooted in reality, and that identity is not affirmed, 
Well, sometimes people aren't just a little offended by that. They often feel personally attacked. Sometimes they feel violence has been committed against them because you didn't affirm the identity they created for themselves in their imagination. This This is kind of a hot topic today, isn't it? And it's not just a particular segment of our society. It's all of us. All of us do this. We all have an image of ourselves, an identity that, if it isn't affirmed, can feel like disrespect or even violence. It's not that somebody's actually harmed us. I mentioned this last week. Sometimes people hurt us, but they don't harm us. Doctors will hurt us, but they won't harm us. Not supposed to, anyway. God sometimes needs to hurt us. God sometimes needs to hurt our pride. Sometimes God allows other people to hurt us, including those who love us most. He'll allow to hurt us, but he will never allow us to be harmed. As the, as the Bible says, faithful are the words, are, excuse me, faithful are the wounds of a friend. The, 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 the deceitful are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. There is something incredibly freeing about becoming unoffendable. Not that I think I've become a, a, unoffendable, uh, not, not by a long shot, but I have had those occasions where, where I could have been offended, but I just chose not to. And it was really, it was really that simple. It's just being conscious in the moment that, you know what, I'm going to choose a different path. I'm not going to be offended. Uh, I just decided not to be offended, not to take myself too seriously, not to try to defend an image of myself or an identity that, that may not be fully rooted in, in reality. And it's so freeing. You, you've probably experienced this too, haven't you? That, that kind of freedom. It generates joy and a, and a sense of peace. You actually feel yourself growing in that moment, growing in confidence, growing in humility, in character, in the fruits of the Spirit. You sense you are becoming a bigger person in that moment. I'm just not going to be offended. And, and, and you feel yourself becoming a bigger person, even though the experience might result in a more superficial diminishing. I think you know what I mean. As a struggling lawyer before he was president, Abraham Lincoln was employed on an important case. He was still relatively unknown at the time. The head lawyer on the team that he was assigned to uh, saw him, and he pointed, and he said to his associates, he said, get rid of that guy. Uh, I will not be associated with such a gawky ape as that, just based on his Lincoln's appearance. He says, get rid of him. Well, time passed, and Lincoln became president of the United States. Among his most outspoken critics was that lawyer who had insulted and ridiculed him. But Lincoln knew that however cruel and insulting this guy had been, he also had strengths and qualities that he didn't have. So when it came time for Lincoln to select somebody for the vital post of Secretary of War, he chose Edwin Stanton, the same lawyer who had insulted and ostracized him and then all through his campaigning had so brutally criticized him. That takes a big man, doesn't it? One day during Lincoln's presidency, a White House page delivered a directive from Lincoln to Stanton. When Stanton heard it, he said to the page, if the president is issuing that directive, then he is a dumb fool. The page reported this back to Lincoln. How do you suppose Lincoln responded? Impertinence. 
insubordination, outrageous. How dare he? No, no. Lincoln continued to be seemingly unoffendable. Rather than pull rank, rather than pursue disciplinary measures for insubordination, Lincoln simply re replied, well, if Stanton said that I was a dumb fool, then I dare say I must be one because he's right about most things. Just unoffendable. And we admire such people, don't we? And he was probably one of the largest, greatest presidents we've ever seen. Later, as Lincoln lay dying, the victim of an assassin's bullet, as he took his last breath, it was Stanton who said, with great affection and respect, now he belongs to the ages. Listen, God knows the real you. He knows the real you better than you know yourself. Your real identity is rooted securely in Jesus, not in yourself, not in your imaginations. So it does not need to be defended, but is perfectly protected by God's grace, goodness, and sovereign power, which is, which is why spiritual pride is the most dangerous kind of pride. Pride is all about yourself and is rooted in an identity of goodness and virtue we've created in our own imagination. The Christian grows to understand he has no goodness and virtue of his own. None. Apart from God, we are animals. It's only because of who God is that we have any kind of goodness and virtue at all. The only goodness and virtue is when we get out of the way, we get out of our own way, and embrace a goodness and virtue that we cannot take credit for ourselves. A goodness and virtue that is rooted in Christ. And that's why the Apostle Paul said when he considered his own righteousness uh, as dung, that's, that's what he was talking about. It was a righteousness that he had, but a righteousness of his own making, of his own manufacturing. At one time, he had rooted us, his identity in that. But he said he came to consider his own righteousness as garbage and tossed it away so he could possess a righteousness not of his own making, but of Christ's very own righteousness bestowed on him by faith through grace. Let's read this passage so that you know that I'm not making it up here. This is what he said. It's kind of a little bit lengthy passage, but we'll just go through this. He says, this is in Philippians, his letter to the Philippians. He says, we rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could. In, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, well, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was uh, eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were very valuable. He, he, he might even fact... In fact, even said that he once rooted his identity in all these qualifications and exploits and, you know, things about himself. He says, I, I once thought these were very valuable, but now, but now I consider them worthless. 
because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is, is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage. The Greek word actually there uh, that Paul actually used is dung. He counts it but dung so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. Worship team, why don't you guys come back up? Why do we get offended? And in getting offended, why do we get angry? Because we're threatened. Our identity is under attack. Who we think we are, the very essence of who we think we are, our perceived selves is being assaulted. So we get defensive, we get angry, offended. But in reality, our actual identity can never suffer any kind of harm at all. Psalm 56, I trust in God, so why should I be afraid? What can mere mortals do to me? Nothing. Our actual identity does not need the affirmation of other people. Romans 8, if God is for you, who can be against you? Nothing can take away or minimize or diminish or threaten. Nothing can, can reduce you in any way who you really are in God. Nothing and no one. And when you truly believe that, you become unoffendable. For you have died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Dead people don't get offended, do they? You go up to a casket, and you can just, you can say all kinds of mean things and cuss them out and whatever, and they will just lie there. So, if we get offended, maybe it's because we haven't completely died to our old self. Maybe we haven't completely died to the image that we've created of ourselves in our imagination. Listen, you will never be anything more than what God has destined you to be. You'll never be anything more than God has destined you to be. And none of your posturing, maneuvering, self-promotion, virtue signaling, attention-seeking, trumpet-blowing, and fanfare will result in you becoming anything more than who God has destined you to be. So, so don't even go there. It's all just so stressful and wearying, isn't it? Stirring up stress and anxiety and fear and constantly having to prove yourself and prove yourself to yourself. But if you could only see through spiritual eyes who and what God has destined you to be, which is far more than anything you can imagine in your mind, if you could only see through spiritual eyes, you just wouldn't worry about all that other stuff. You would see it for what it is. It's just nothing. It's just, it's just what other fallen human beings, they're... What can they offer you? Jesus said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Children don't even know who they are yet, right? They get their identity from their parents, don't they? As a general rule, unless there's been some kind of trauma, children don't typically suffer from identity crisis. So I would just encourage you, look to no one else, to no place else, not even yourself, for your identity, for who you really are, and let God find your identity in God and God alone. So Jesus, help us to do that today. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are a loving, gracious Father, and that in you we have an incredible identity, one that we cannot fully grasp in this life, but we get hints of and glimpses of. We get hints and glimpses when we love others, when we serve others, when we stoop down low, when we humble ourselves, when we wash each other's feet, when we don't go to, to, to demonstrate how great we are and how, uh, you know, when we don't try to elevate ourselves, but when we lower ourselves, we begin to see something that is so profoundly beautiful and glorious and freeing, liberating. So, Lord, help us to to grab a hold of this truth. It's a tough truth for us to grab hold of. There's so many things against our fallen nature about this. But help us, Lord Jesus, and thank you for your immense grace, your love, your mercy, your acceptance. You love us even though we are so fallen. You love us, and you want, Lord Jesus, to lift us up in the only way that truly matters. Thank you, God, for your amazing love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen.